Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Shocker. I'm here with my good friend, Mark, and co-host. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I am good. You should make it clear that I'm both of those things. It's not like you're here with your friend, Mark, and also your co-host, who's this theoretical other person. Or true. is this when you announce that you have an imaginary friend and or that I'm being fired? <sighs> Awkward. So, we are going to talk about the games we played this week. Of which there are tons, again. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Then we're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is Gatefall. But you already knew that because it was in the show notes. Don't pretend you didn't know. Get that look of surprise off your face. They're genuinely surprised nobody reads the show notes. It's true. Not even the Gibbons, but of course they're illiterate. Mark puts a lot of effort into the show notes, and I, I read them, Mark. Even though I don't listen to the show, I go and read the show notes. I'm touched. They're good. What did you play this week, Mark? I played The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine, and I have some bad news, Walker. I have to say that The Crew Underwater has spoiled me for crew. I can't normal crew anymore, especially not with five. We played with five, and was, as was incredibly evident that one time we played the crew with Efgen Elaine online for the charity drive, the crew with five is brutally unforgiving, which is fine. Still satisfying gameplay, but the problem is, is that deep in the back of my lizard brain as I was playing the crew, and we were suffering the slings and arrows of outrageously misfortunate mission draws, because, you know, the variance between the difficulty missions can can swing an incredible degree based on what colors you pull, whether they're all the same color, whether you pull them in a strange order. It's like, well, first someone has to win with the pink four, then they have to win with the pink seven, and then they have to win with the pink eight. It's like, oh, come on, can we not get another color? And could we possibly get in a reasonable order? Anyway, this is all exacerbated when playing with five. And deep in the back of my head, I'm thinking, hmm, if this were Mission Deep Sea, it would self-balance. And so just not only just the variety of mission types, but the fact that it is better balanced and hence less frustrating maybe makes me think that I, uh, all things being equal, I can't recommend the Quest for Planet Night anymore when Mission Deep Sea is an option. Now, that having been said, will I still play Quest for Planet Night? Absolutely. The crew is still amazing. All versions of the crew are definitely preferable to, I think, almost all other trick-taking environments. But Mission Deep Sea is just so much better, and I think this is the first time I've ever played five-player crew, certainly some of the more difficult missions, and I'm, I'm not even talking some of the really hard ones, I mean like late 20s Yikes. of the 50s. But even then, it was just, you know, you see the mission flop, it's like, well, this is pointless, there's no way we can do this. And again, I just kept thinking, Mission Deep Sea, much better setup. So uh, I, I'm a little sad, to be frank. <laughs> so that was the crew, Quest for Planet Nine, designed by Thomas Singh, Cosmos 2019. Remember, crew is better than no crew, but Mission Deep Sea is just so vastly superior, especially when playing with five. So Mark, I, borrow, I borrowed cartographers off of Warm Boy because I knew Butterfly would enjoy it, and sure enough, she did. This is designed by Jordi Adan and published by Thunderworks Games, and it is a sort of flip and write. So you have the four seasons, and in every season, you're going to have a variety of cards that tell you what type of shapes to draw and what kind of shapes they are. They're going to be either houses or fields or forests or rivers. And at the beginning of the game, you're going to see your four different scoring options a b c and d and they're all going to score in different sort of varieties throughout the th four seasons and you get to draw the shapes wherever you like 
on your board. They don't have to touch or anything, but you do have to sort of make sure you have room for all these shapes by the end of the game. There's all sorts of different combinations you can get, which is nice because, because the deck that you're drawing from is fairly big, and there's some cards you're just not going to see because every season has sort of like a, a threshold number, and every card has a number, and as soon as you meet or exceed that, then that season is over. And on top of that, there are ambush cards, which are very interesting. You, When you flip an ambush card, you pass your sheet clockwise or to the other player if you're only playing with two, and they get, get to put these like sort of monster shapes onto your board, and they plant them right in the middle or in the way of this awesome in little village. In the most obnoxious it, place possible, yes. Because she enjoyed coloring and I enjoyed doing silly things, our our little sheets looked amazing because we took our time. <laughs> we were like drawing little monsters and, and trees and, and making them look very nice. We had a great time playing cartographers, even though the box was full of, you know, every single expansion. It was awesome. We had just like the base game in its own box. So you pull that out, play it, and that's all you need to do. Lots of room to go in different places. And that is cartographers. I played a game of Res Arcana. This is the super minimalistic, in some ways, tableau builder by Thomas Lehman, published by Sandcastle Games. This time I played with both expansions that have yet been published, Lux at Tenebrae and Pearly Imperii. And this was actually brought up in the context of our Discord with respect to our praising 51st State Master Set, because the observation was basically that, you know, Tom Lehman does, does it better. And I have to agree. When it comes to 51st State Master Set, I think it is an excellent tableau builder. But quite frankly, when compared to things like Race for the Galaxy or Res Arcana, I have to say that I think it's inferior. And Res Arcana manages to capture things in such a minimalistic aspect. Namely, you only have your eight cards you're only going to have maybe four, five, six rounds, even when you're not playing especially competently. This isn't one of those games where the rulebook says, well, the game might last four to six rounds, and it's only the incredibly expert tryhards that... Uh, sorry, we're trying to retire that term. It's only the incredibly expert players with memorized openings that can get to an endgame situation in four to six rounds. No, even if you're fumbling about and not particularly talented at the game, it's still going to be very, very, very quick. But very satisfying. You're going to see card combinations you've never seen before because there's a large deck from which you only get your eight cards. Res Arcana, I think, is second fiddle to Race for the Galaxy. I prefer that as, as, uh, as far as my all-time... Tableau Builders go, but Res Arcana remains very, very satisfying. I have yet to plumb the depths of the Pearls of Power expansion. It kind of opens up the game and ramps the intensity up a little bit by virtue of giving you a little bit more freedom, a little bit more power to uh, generate resources. But I'm looking forward to it, and I've been enjoying my experiences thus far, and I'm looking forward to more plays of Res Arcana. Well, I disagree for only one point. I just really think 51st State is a better sort of casual gaming game because a lot of the cards are balanced, whereas when you have games like Innovation, Race for the Galaxy, and Res Arcana, some of the cards are overbalanced. It's the luck of the draw. If it comes up, you happen to get it. Or for newer players that don't know the decks, I think it's going to be more punishing. Whereas 51st State, everything is a little bit more balanced. And it's a lot easier to interrupt the person's combos, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd have to strongly disagree with the idea that the cards aren't properly balanced in some of Tom Lehman's work. Now, innovation I'll concede. Uh, balance, when talking about innovation with respect to cards, is kind of missing the point. But with respect to card pulls in Res Arcana, uh, I've honestly never seen an eight-card combination that was decrepit or degenerate in any way. And so I, I definitely think that there are lots of pulls in 51st State. We do it ourselves. Last time we played, the construction crew came up, and everyone's like, oh, that's a great card. Don't pass up on that. And so then it got, promptly got destroyed. <laughs> 
at any rate, we can quibble about this. I'd happily play any of those tableau builders, suffice to say. And I never feel like I'm just at the mercy of the card draw. I always feel like it's it's up to me to make the most of what I've what I've been given, which is not true of all tableau builders, and certainly not true of all games with decks, certainly of decks of that size. So that's Resurcana by Thomas Lehman, Sandcastle Games, originally published in 2019 with expansions over the past few years. So I got Tribes of the Wind back to the table. This is designed by Jochheim Home and published by La Boite de Jeu. And we streamed it, so if you want to check it out, check out our YouTube live channel. And it was enjoyed by all. This is a great, straightforward, has a nice little hook to it where you're using the backs of the cards of your players to the left and the right. And there were some comments made about, you know, because people's cards change so quickly that it's hard to plan for your next turn. But I push back a little bit on that because there are cards in your hand that can only play it at certain times, like cards that say you have the fewest water and you look to the left and right and, you know, they have some and you have none. It's like, well, I'm going to play that, you know, cards that you want to play immediately because that opportunity is going to disappear. So sometimes that's not to say that you're always going to have those cards in your hand, but I think that if you know what's in your hand, you can pounce on those opportunities where things change up quickly. Right. And your neighbor, the neighbor to your left is not going to change their hand. And the neighbor to your right is only going to change their hand probably by one. Now, in cases where they do the action where they discard three cards, which is very seldom over the course of the game, yes, you then do have to reevaluate sometimes. But most of the time, you're absolutely right. The key challenge of Tribes of the Wind from, from my playing of it was, well... The composition of my neighbor's hands puts pressure on me to play this card, but really my board position makes me want to play this other card, which will be less effective. In other words, choices. Yep, and the production is amazing. It moves along at a pretty good rate. It could do with maybe one less turn. But other than that, Tribes of the Wind is easy to teach, fun to play. I played Steam Up, A Feast of Dim Sum. This is a recently fulfilled Kickstarter from Hot Banana Games. This is a a domestic Canadian product in honor of the single greatest meal in the history of human civilization. That is dim sum. The deluxe version from the Kickstarter version has little plastic steamer baskets. And in them, you put little plastic pieces of dim sum, little plastic barbecue buns and little plastic hagao and little plastic phoenix claws and little plastic steamed rice. It is probably one of the most delightfully presented games I've played all year. In fact, I, I, I struggle to remember the last time I had such delight with the components of a game. It is tactilely wonderful, it is visually delightful, and it is honor of one of my favorite sets of foodstuffs in all of existence. The only negative thing that I can say about dim sum is don't bring vegetarians and be very careful if you bring someone who keeps kosher. I have done both, both by accident. They both kind of worked out, less so with the vegetarian. It's tricky. Anyway, Steam Up a Feast for Dim Sum is an absolute physical joy. Do you have any questions about the gameplay, Walker? Does it matter? Sadly, it does. Oh. I didn't enjoy playing it, Walker. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, the components really are wonderful. It's got this lazy Susan where you're spinning these uh, plates around. And indeed, everything's been thought out very, very carefully in terms of the components. Even little plastic feet at the bottom of the board upon which there's the little cardboard lazy Susan so the board doesn't skid around. Despite that, there are some shortcomings in terms of the physical design of the game. When you're playing with five players... In Steam Up, it's not exactly clear which steamer piles are available to you. Two, three, and four, 
perfectly transparent. The little cardboard rings they have that delineate the zones work marvelously in those contexts. With five, it gets very confusing. The gameplay itself is uh, utterly pedestrian and forgettable. You're basically taking tokens and then using those tokens to buy bits of food, which give you points. And that's about it. Ugh. Yeah, it. it uh, I was. I, I kind of knew what I was getting into when I pledged for it. I regret nothing. <laughs> As a way to support a local development house and as an ability to marvel at the state of board game component manufacturing, I am very, very pleased. As far as the game component goes, I have no interest in ever playing it again. The only sense in which the game gets quote-unquote livened up in Steam Up is with a variety of action cards that do a variety of zany things, like everyone roll the die and whoever rolls highest gets a resource of their choice and... It it wow. it's great to stop play and wait and make and see everyone roll the die and then it's a tie. So, and do, then do they have a card flip the table and end the pain? No, I just I just cradle the lovely little Hagao and Shumai in the tiny little rubbery things, and I think about going home and eating some some Hagao and Shumai, and and then I'm sure there's a card that says it now written in blood. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was Steam Up, a feast of dim sum. Mark, you and I played a game called Switch and Signal. We played it a bunch of times. This is designed by David Thompson and put out by Cosmos Games. It is a fantastic cooperative train game where you're manipulating stations and and signals in and out of cities and you're delivering goods and you're all trying to do this under a heavy time constraint and puzzling out because every time you do something wrong, there's a penalty and you lose more time. And this is the first time we finally beat it. Yes, I was very pleased. So this is a review copy we got from the designer, and it's been very, very difficult. We've always run out of time doing it. It's got a sort of madcap air traffic controller vibe because the trains, you can move them yourself, but mostly they move by themselves. And when you want them to go fast, they're never moving fast enough. When you want them to sit still, they're going too fast. And managing that is one of the interesting aspects and some of the trade-offs for Switch and Signal. You basically, all you can do is prepare the path for the trains and hope that they make it to their destinations at the time you want them to, and that there's not some sort of traffic jam in Marseille, for example. And it's very, very different from David Thompson's other outputs, and nonetheless very pleasing. Uh, so Chip the Third, who loves trains, but not necessarily train games in the way that some train gamers would label train games. So very frequently when people talk about train games, they basically mean stock games. Switch and Signal is not that. <laughs> it is more of a root connection game, if anything. And I, I was a little concerned going into it because it is one of those classic cooperative games that makes zero effort whatsoever to delineate the individual player roles, right? So people who don't like to play even Pandemic because like, oh, well, it's basically work by committee. Switch and Signal is even way further on that spectrum than anything else. We, however, of the many problems that our playgroups sometimes encounter with some kinds of games, we never have any problems with games of that ilk, broadly speaking. And I was very, very uh, pleased. I was My concerns for the structural nature of the four-player environment were definitely overwhelmed by the fact that Switch and Signal re remains a relentlessly delightful little puzzle to solve, even though in the abstract there's some sort of quarterbacking problem and it's never manifested in our plays. Yeah, you have three different trains. They go three different speeds. All of this, you know surmises into trains arriving in places that you don't want them to or or and then you can always send them off in like in sort of a loop and say okay well go off in that direction for a bit <laughs> we'll do deal with you later we can't deal with you now yeah. go away <laughs> and you can either play all of your cards or none of them so on your next turn you'll have because then you'll have 10 cards you're not going to discard so you'll have a great turn next round but you might have left it in poor shape for the next player but 
I will play Switch and Signal anytime. Played a game of the only game that matters, Steel Team Flicks. Pete, Ruth, and Mark Thomas. This is a review copy we got from the designers. And uh, Seal Team Flicks is aged like fine wine, Walker. I mean, some people yeah. regard the antiquated years of 2018 as basically uh, antediluvian, uh, but honestly, there's still nothing like it. Very and jealous. There, and, there, and there never will be anything like it ever again, because Phantom Division does not exist. But Seal Team Flicks was a wonderful experience. I, I, I brought it out because Dewey's son uh, needed to be babysat, and he's not an experienced board gamer. And I basically boiled it down. It's like, okay. Mostly you'll be moving and shooting. And then I made a couple of cracks about how he plays online video games. Maybe more than a couple. Maybe relentlessly. Maybe it was a whole thing. Anyway. <laughs> and I pulled out my favorite map, the subway map. The subway map is is just a work of genius. Lovely little bits of exploiting cover and different dangerous fire lanes that you have to dash through in order to get where you're going. And I played the bomb disposal specialist, whose job it is to defuse the bombs using one of the many delightful mini-games in SEAL Team Flicks. And uh, I defused the first bomb, no problem. Uh, let's not talk about the second bomb, and uh, whether or not I single-handedly caused us to lose our game of SEAL Team Flicks. We, we, we tend to really love that subway map. It is, I think, our favorite. It is definitely my favorite of the maps, especially since if you play the, and I, we said this before, we commented on this when we reviewed it, uh, the second scenario, if you win the first scenario, has an unfortunate sort of, it's somewhere between a typo and an errata, because the original design of the scenario, there was a big fat door at the starting entrance area, and so it wasn't a huge meat grinder. If you play the campaign as written in the published rules, the second mission is, I'm not going to say unwinnable, but darn near close. And so it's great to just be able to pick the missions a la carte, especially since, I, I mean, who's got time for campaigns? I don't want a campaign of anything. And I do like just trying the different maps. And they, they all have different feels to them. You can you know go apartment to apartment in an overall apartment map. There's the airport map, which is brutal because there's this huge open tarmac with people taking pot shots at you. Anyway, our favorite, as I said, is the subway map. It is delightful, both visually and tactilely original. Huge fan of SEAL Team Flicks. Very glad to have been able to play it again. We played Starfighters Rapid Fire. This is a game put out by Alley Cat Games. I like a lot of things they do. So this do is I. designed by Michael Dunsmore and Jordan Nichols. And it's a sort of real-time spaceship dogfight game. Yes. All of those things are things that I like in games. And yet. And yet. <laughs> And it was most to do with the timing. It was one of these. It was one of these things that was very much like uh, Captain Sonar, where someone would yell out "stop," and the only the only prerequisites to this is that you'd have to have one thing programmed on your board. You're rolling dice as fast as you can. You're putting the dice, allocating the dice out into these different actions you can do, and at any point you can just say "stop," and then everyone starts to get to do fulfill the actions that they filled out, starting with the player that. Uh, called stop which i think would work out not too badly except for this missile system they have which seems a little doesn't work smoothly with this action system well there's that uh you're right you raised an objection early on in the game what is to stop someone from launching a missile and then abusing the quote-unquote turn structure or lack thereof to just say stop over and over and there's that. My chief objection to Starfighter's Rapid Fire, which all, uh, which I found, generally speaking, not so much tedious as pointless, 
which then induced a certain kind of tedium. Uh, nothing that we did was particularly interesting or fun. Uh, the way you inflict damage is you either exploit the torpedo system, or what you do is you fill out the weapon system and then you just throw dice that have roughly a 50% chance of doing damage. And there's not really much reason for maneuver. Contrast this with Space Cadet's dice tool. What I wanted Starfighter's Rapid Fire to be, and indeed I commented on this on several episodes of Pledge of Indifference when I was originally pledging for it and when I was considering the game, I wanted it to be a simpler, easier to get to the table, Space Cadet's Dice Duel. Space Cadet's Dice Duel has enough systems involved such that you really have to be able to figure out at a glance what the table state is and be able to figure out where to devote resources to overcome the necessary defects in your current system a lot. In Starfighter's Rapid Fire, for one thing, uh, your main weapon system has no facing attached to it. So right away... If you're right next to an opponent, it's like, I guess I'll just roll as quickly as possible to do as much damage as possible, and then that's probably going to be determined by the random weapon results. Anyway, there's not much going on. And as a consequence, despite the fact that I really love real-time dice rolling games, I'll play any game with real-time dice rolling, more or less. But uh, I'd have to say that Starfighter's Rapid Fire is, is, is my least favorite of the bunch. It was, just, it was so odd, because it's very minor design changes. Like, for the dice fulfillment, instead of covering up the whole board, they could have fit everything to a sort of card-shaped slot and then just made it that you could, like, upgrade mm. the weapons with some sort of card system. Even if it even if it was, like, the advanced game where you get to design a ship and it doesn't change during the game or, you know, like, we'll learn later on something that you can sort of spend things. Sure. You know, make a trade-off. Like, I'm going to do less damage this turn but upgrade my weapons so next turn I'm going to actually do something. That would be interesting. Thankfully... The game ends as soon as someone blows up. Yes. That's the best part of the game. <laughs> yes, the sweet release of death. That was Starfighter's Rapid Fire. So, I like all sorts of trick-taking games. And I've got all the two Fox and the Forest ones, and, and we love Crew, and all sorts of different ones. So, when this Kickstarter came up for a solo trick-taking game, I was all over This is for Northwood! A solo trick-taking game. This is designed by Wilhelm Sue and, and it's published by himself, Kickstarter. He didn't put it through anybody else. And I'm lo I, I'm not sure. I was talking to Mark about this earlier. And I'm not sure if it can. It depends how strict you want to be with trick-taking <laughs> games, right? Yeah. We've talked about this before. And it's like, well, if you don't do this, then it's not really if you don't do that. This, in yeah, this your, game, your contention is if you never get to lead... Can it be called a trick-taking game? Yeah. Is that an essential part of trick-taking game? Manipulating the hands in order to get a lead at, at, at a key point that you wanted to in order to take control of the rest of the hand. I would say it is an essential gameplay or strategic or tactical element of many trick-taking games. I do not know. I haven't played this game, so I can't comment. But I don't know if it's a definitional element of trick-taking games per se. Now, possibly... Were I to play for Northwood, it might convince me that it's a definition yeah, element of yeah, you'll games. Be like, man, because it is, it's very off putting. Because, uh, what's going to happen is that you're going to flip a random card and you're either going to have to, and you have to follow suit no matter what. So either you're going to throw away a lower card and hope you're going to be able to beat it later, or you're going to have a higher card and want to beat it. Sometimes you won't want to beat it at all because there are eight different sort of locations that you visit. You have, to look, you have to visit each one. Well, four of them are Northwood from the title. <laughs> uh, and these uh, seven locations are numbered zero through seven. And this represents the number of tricks you have to take. 
and you can visit them in any order you want. They all have leaders that if you defeat them, then you can use them as special abilities. You also start with four jacks that are special abilities that you can use one of during the hand as well. They do all sorts of things. I won't go into that part. But, and there's also a advanced mode where you're going to use the kings and queens in the deck immediately. Definitely going to try it some more. I enjoyed playing it. It's it's the you know, the randomness off the deck or, you know, trying to manipulate your hands so you're ready for things and, and seeing what special abilities you have and saying, well, okay, I need to take, you know, out of my eight cards, I need to take all seven tricks on this next one. Ugh. Yeah, it's pretty rough, but like I said, there are special abilities of which you can only use one, but still it was a neat little game and the cuteness factor is through the roof. That is for Northwood. We got to play Oak. Oak is one of our favorite worker placement games of the past few years by Wim Hoosens at the at Game Brewer. Lovely game of druid dress-up and druid worker placement. Once again, though, I would like to stress, I'll start off with, with my objections to Oak. I mentioned this when we reviewed it not too long ago. I really do feel as though that points-for-points points track is, is not ideal. One of the key ways that you score points in Oak is by advancing along these branches of the tree. And most of them require trade-offs. And you, in fact, discovered a few turns into the game that you had selected to specialize in both arms of a single branch, which is impossible to pursue both. And you were uh, very bitterly regretting that. Yeah, I was too, I was too, I was too busy having fun playing. Yes. And then I looked down and went, oh, wait, that's the same branch. I can't do that. And then, yeah, all was lost. Yes. And, I mean, to a certain extent, that's fine. I, I'm not a huge fan of tracks as a scoring mechanism. It works fine in the context of Oak. The sheer delight of acquiring and manipulating your various advanced druids and or artifacts and or monsters and or dwellings is of sufficient delight in the card play and the way that works with workers. I just don't like the fact that all of the branches of the tree, save one, require some degree of specialization. And so therefore... Every game of Oak that I play, it feels very different because I'm doing different things, but in terms of scoring, it always redounds to the same pattern. I usually advance one druid to the end of some track to take benefit of something in which I have specialized, either because I decided to specialize in it at the start of the game, or it emerged that I was going to specialize in it later, and then I hit the track for the one point for every five points you've already scored. Every single time. That's just the way to do it. And it feels like I, like it's just not as much variety as it could have otherwise, because it's the one aspect of the game that doesn't drip with trade-offs and variety. Everything else is just so marvelous in terms of options and different ways to go about getting to the same results and different upgrades you might want to take different upon different paths and the different special power you got. To, anyway, it's also well done. The fact that there's this one aspect that feels the same every time I play, it just wrinkles me a little bit. That having been said, just to be perfectly clear, when somebody suggested Oak, despite the fact that we reviewed it recently, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, let's play Oak. And I had a, I had a blast playing it once again. And some of those things, I don't want to say it's a detriment, but we love games where we don't even need the rule book. We set it up, we play it, the rule book stayed in the box the whole time. I don't think this will ever be the case. With <laughs> it's true. Because the the, uh, the very interesting and cool parts about Oak are the fact that it has this entire deck of creatures that are all completely different, decks of artifacts that all do different things, different potions every game, and even though the symbology is good, yeah, 
It's the kind of symbology that will remind you of what it does after someone's already told you what it does. And about 20 to 25 to 50% of the cards in Oak, when they come up, one of us is able to remember what it does. The rest of the time, though, we race to the rulebook. This time also, it reminded me, sometimes you have to go to the rulebook to remember exactly the timing issues with respect to how passing works. Yeah, there are a couple of issues that we have to go back to the rulebook for. Yeah, so... You may call that a negative or not. I say it is a little bit of negative because I don't like the fiddly bits. But I'll play Oak anytime. Oak is so good. Toy Factor, these that that card teamed up with worker placement, all of these things. Very interesting. Oak by Game Brewer. Mark, I finally got to play an actual game. When I say actual <laughs> what game. What have we been doing? I don't mean an actual I'm game. Confused. It's part of the, not an actual game and then stop. Actual game of. Okay. And I don't want to say that because I didn't play it in real life. I, I, even though I played it online. What are you saying? I'm, I'm to so get, confused. Because you never let me finish the sentence. Anyway. <laughs> I, as in, I... I, I, I so I played used, this game. I didn't play a game. It was used, the first game I ever played. I don't play games. I used all of the mechanisms. You know, these, these games where you have so many different paths and so many different things you could do. And sometimes it lets you just do a few of them and you don't have to worry about some of them. Yes. This was a game of Messina 1345 by... 47. Vlad- Oh, I didn't even cut and paste it. That was just, yeah, it's okay. Messina 1430. 1347. Messina 13. I've never played this game, and I know the. <laughs> Messina 1347 by Vladimir Suchi. And I got to use all of the mechanics. This was on Yakata with some of the listeners. And even though the game took 45 years to play, <laughs> it was still very enjoyable. Uh, you know, I went back but to. But this the- was asynchronous, right? Yes, oh, for sure. <laughs> Just making it absolutely clear. And, uh, yeah, so I got to go back to the rule book and, you know, read all of those different parts of the game that I don't usually engage with because I'm, you know, bringing it out for the first time in, you know, six months or something and I'm too busy, you know, explaining rules or worrying about my own components. This is where I could bring in the whole game and I'm really enjoying it. It's about the plague coming to a town and you're uh, collecting the uh contain contagious people and you're curing them and you're repopulating the city and you're fighting the plague and you're building uh wagons and and you know point stuff i just hope our listeners are able to appreciate the quality of those ontario vowels i say this just as an observation you're not going to get vowels like that from me you're not going to get that beautiful say, say, say that illness again walker black plague Beautiful. Plague. Beautiful. The beautiful. Plague. I can't say it that way. I say plague. That's plague. the only way I can say it. It's just an observation. We we revel in linguistic differences here at So Very Wrong About Games. Anyway, please do continue. He's got the bite. Simgaya! Anyway, moving on. See, no one understands the power of Jackson's first film. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I, okay. And that is Messina 1373. Seven, two, one. Thirteen forty-seven, and that was Messina thirteen forty-seven. <laughs> Finally, for me, we got to play another game of Seismic. This is a pre-production prototype on loan to us from the designer. It is going to be on crowdfunding very soon, within about a week. And the toy factor is absolutely real. I just look at those power mechs, and I, I, I just get lost. So. The core gameplay of Seismic. This is a troops on a map game that has a very interesting arc to it. You have to go and fight fights. To spec for specific reasons, that is something that we we enjoy. In and out, fight with you. Ha, you're obliged to fight with all factions. This is also something we enjoy. No turtling, no ganging up, no 
drop kicking the same faction over and over and over again. Sometimes no hard feelings because you realize that this is required. Okay, well that's the problem here, right? So what we've got here is a, is is for me anyway a classic case of a core system and then everything else. The core system for me is the way the action cards work, the way the bonus system works, and the way the battle system interacts with that and your overall goals of the game. As far as that's concerned with Seismic, I think a lot of it is great and all of it is good. You know, the second. Then there's everything else. That's the problem. So there are discovery cards, there are relics, there are espionage cards. There's the the way the planet falls apart in a semi-random order, in a semi-random fashion. And I have yet to play a game of Seismic. I've played four times now. I've yet to play a game of Seismic where nobody at the table felt like the game, or at least the game state overall, was punching them repeatedly in the junk. And to a certain extent, I can understand why that's the case. Because there's a lot of arbitrary and mean things that are going to happen in the game of Seismic. The kind of troops on a, on a map game that we prefer are the ones where there's transactional combat, and as a consequence, there's no hard feelings. And indeed, when it comes to the fights that got picked, nobody ever in our playing of Seismic has ever been like, why are you fighting me? It's always perfectly clear. They're like, all right, bring it on. And that part's great. But there's just so much of this other stuff. <laughs> and so what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm left with here is I'm wanting Seismic to be what it isn't. Right? When it comes to, I want it to be like Senji, I want it to be like Kemet. To me, it is not like those experiences. It is closer to the spectrum of, not necessarily in terms of design philosophy, but in terms of experience of, say, those old Milton Bradley Game Master games, you know, three hours or so with a lot of interesting stuff, but there's some rough edges that are a little bit wonky and you just have to kind of roll with it. And I'm trying to accept that. And I really do like the action selection, the theme, and the way the battles work, but the problem is I have to put up with a whole bunch of other noise in the system of Seismic in order to have the good stuff. And I am in a position where I'm willing to put up with it, and I think I may be running out of people in the city who are. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed 75% of our game of Seismic today. And I think one of the other things is, you know, bringing the crescendo to a close. Lots of games do this right. It's like, bam, 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 right. and it's done. And and this game fights against itself for reasons, right? Because you want to try to get a chance to win. So you're going to hold some people prisoner. You're going to trap some people. And this all sort of stops the person in the lead from finishing the game. But for the other people that aren't close, this is just making a two-hour experience last even longer. Well, if it were reliably two hours, I think I'd be a lot more forgiving when it comes to seismic. I'm willing to forgive a lot of things if there's novelty and a tight action selection mechanism, satisfying components, and a very, very good thematic integration, all of which seismic has. But the estimate that's on the box currently is 30 minutes per player. That has not been my experience. Uh, my experience has been with three players, you might be done in about two hours. With four players, you're probably going to be closer to three, maybe even longer than three, three and a half, sometimes four. And at that length, 
I'm still willing to appreciate all the good things that Seismic brings to the table, but at that point it starts facing really steep competition from even things like successors or things like civilization, the OG civilization, if you play on, on, on some of the shorter ones. And at that perspective, having a lot of your progress underdone by a take that action card starts to really make clear why so many people leave a table of sight can leave a table of Seismic with hard feelings. Well, especially at that end point where there's two people that are very close to finishing. Right. Right. And, and so it's, and, and the action selection is so good. So it's very it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, so tense. You, you're seeing what they're playing and you can see that you're like, you could be one turn ahead, but then these random things start happening that, that take you out of the running. Right. Even though, you know, you're, it's, you're getting this good tension of, of, of trying to beat the person and they and they see it as well. And then it's just undone by, or, by or randomness. Even, or sometimes, sometimes I would argue as bad or possibly even worse, you're not in contention for the victory. And yet some random event or some card play targets you anyway. Like all the good things in the battle system, all the elements that make sure that everyone is engaged and it seems fair and transactional in all the best way is not how the card play works. Card play aside from the action selection. And all the insights that you have that lead to an excellent battle system, normally people get upset about why are you why are you picking a fight with me? As I say, you never have that in Seismic. In Seismic, you have, why did you bother playing that card? It's like, well, I had nothing else to do with my bonus action, so I might as well just go kill something. <laughs> and th keep in mind, this is after I sat down and I pruned away a whole bunch of action and effect cards that I thought were most likely to lead to bad feelings. And yet there were still lots of weird things that happened where people were like, well, this is some hardcore nonsense. And we just don't have those kinds of objections uh, very much in other kinds of games of this ilk. And I just wish there was some sort of, you, you know what I honestly wish? Nothing against the designer, Jason Blake. This is what developers are for. You know, a really talented developer, he's able to sit down and say, like, wow, you came up with some really amazing ideas. Now let's prune and refine, right? And sometimes you just need more heads for that. That's what publishers used to do. That's what a good developer you can sit down, sit down and do, and ideally that kind of process. And I don't know if uh, Seismic is going to be put through those processes. I don't know if it's the case that those kinds of resources exist. I certainly know that the infrastructure of crowdfunding doesn't lead to that kind of shepherding of a good idea to polish uh, necessarily. As it is, it's an uneven marriage between a whole bunch of different elements. Yeah, but some we, there are games out here that like th that people enjoy like that. So this could be something like Dwellings of Eldervale is almost <laughs> is almost identical, right? You know, punishing random stuff that's going to happen and put you back constantly, and and people enjoy that kind of thing. So maybe there there could be a, a, an avenue for that. <laughs> maybe <And> that <laughs> is seismic by jason blake put out by star reach games and those are the games that we played this week this episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions manscaped this season make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below the waist grooming clear out that winter bush with manscaped's lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust manscaped with our special offer Go to manscaped.com and use code SoWrongGames for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Very sad news, Walker. Klaus Tuber has passed away after a short and sudden illness. Klaus Tuber is, of course, the author of The Settlers of Catan, as well as the overwhelming majority of Catan spinoffs. Uh, I, I, for one, am a massive fan of Starship Catan, Starfarers of Catan, as well as the as the Catan card game, which has gone through a number of different names and is currently known as the Rivals of Catan. And honestly, uh, the hobby as we know it today would not exist without Klaus Tuber. I don't think anyone could seriously quibble with that characterization. And I just want to point out, I will include a link to this in the episode notes. Dan Thoreau uh, of Space Biff wrote an absolutely beautiful eulogy of his experience with Klaus Tuber products and uh, what it's meant to his life. And I certainly can't add anything better to that. So I'll just say thank you, Klaus Tuber, for making the hobby that I love. Yeah, and even Domain. I was going through it. I had Domain in my collection yeah, forever. Fabulously talented designer. In fact, you're right. It's wrong just to talk about his Catan games when he's he's really had such a stellar career on top of that. Like I said earlier, Vladimir Suki and Delicious Games has announced their game for this year. It's called Evacuation. Looks very interesting. The board looks very cool. Looking forward to it. Evacuation by Delicious Games. News coming out of Asmati Games. There's going to be a new edition of Innovation. On the one hand, I am very, very pro-Innovation. It is a marvelously bizarre and ingenious take on the Civilization card game. It's also a bizarre take on the Tableau Builder card game. It's going to have a new expansion called the Unseen Expansion. It's going to have a new deck of cards for every other expansion. Going up to age 11, this age goes up to 11. As well as, and these rules I'm the most fond of, an attempt to make the other expansions easier to get to the table, easier to integrate with the base game. Because generally speaking, if you talk to longtime innovation players, we're talking about the people who played innovation literally hundreds of times. They'll talk about how genius it is and how brilliant it is. And then you say, well, what are your favorite expansions? They'll say, well, I don't really play with any of the expansions ever. I tried one of them once and never again. It's Which is a shame because there's some good stuff there. That is on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, for many people, myself included, uh, this will be the third time we've purchased innovation. Because there were several printings, and then there's always upgrades. That having been said, it has been a few years since the last edition. And when it comes to a basically a card game, which has always been kept reasonably priced, eh, I'm willing to take the hit, especially given the quality of the game itself. This isn't like a standard big box game that's going to retail for 80 bucks. You have to buy a whole bunch of times because there's been balance improvements. You know, the base game of innovation is available in a very, very small box for under 20 bucks. So, and honestly, in terms of bang for your buck, you could do a lot worse. Full disclosure, Asmati Games is run by Chris Eslick, a personal friend of mine. Ultimate innovation. Ultimate Finally, some website news at sowronggames.com slash episode notes. You will see a return to the text searchable list of episode notes so you can find out if we've discussed a certain game and if so, during what episode. Uh, you can search my nonsense episode notes themselves to find out what movie or uh, Shakespearean play or other obscure reference I've decided to riff on in the episode notes themselves. There's a lot of good stuff on sowronggames.com. We frequently get questions about this, that, or the other, and very often the answer is go check sowronggames.com. A lot of back 
background information is there about the Swag Extended Universe, or Swagoo. And now you can find out when we've covered various games over the illustrious almost six-year run of So Very Wrong About Games. So yeah. go check out SoWrongGames.com slash episode notes. It works just like the old one. Control-F, type in what you're searching for. It'll bring up the bar, and you can page down to all the different entries of that search. I'm told it is called a website. It is a site on the web. Ooh. Where, yeah, so there's this web thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Is it like... Is there a spider? I don't know. Oh. There might well be. Weird. Yeah. And that is the news, and why it sometimes matters. Now on to the main review, which is Gatefall. Gatefall was published by Jack Dyer and Jack Dyer Studios originally in 2020 after successful crowdfunding. Uh, Jack Dyer has, in one sense, a rather elaborate publication history, and in another case, a rather narrow publication history. He is perhaps best known for the Super Fight series of card games, of which there are, counting now, about as many expansions as there are versions of Monopoly. Super Fight is a very simple game where you argue about who would win in a, uh, a, a supposed contact, a contest of some kind of martial nature. Uh, there's also Red Flags, which is of a similar type where you attach red flags to a hypothetical person and you talk about whether or not you'd date them. Anyway, these are games where you argue with your friends over random cards. You should do a Kickstarter edition. That would be amazing. Like just have some sort of. This is a Kickstarter project, but but you know all of the models are three D rendered and they don't have a rule book yet, and then you start like Ooh. throwing like red flags on that stuff. That would be amazing. That is a good call. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. By all means. Anyway, <laughs> Gatefall is a two player deck building slash miniatures skirmish game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Gatefall? What you do in Gatefall is at the preliminary before the game, you have the bigature flex. You point at the other team and you explain to them why your team is way cooler. Okay. And then you play. Does this lead to the bigature hype beast? Just so. <laughs> so it is very much a risk reward game. Finding the balance between your team's upgrades pruning your deck and your particular play style and, and sort of moving those bars to gain victory is a fantastic, easy to learn, quick to play two player. You can play more, but it is a two player. <laughs> well, there are going to be multiplayer rules released in the next wave of crowdfunding content. But as we've seen before, when you try to take a two player game and turn it into a multiplayer game, seldom works. It would be great if it works. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, look, I always keep an open mind. <laughs> That's right. But for now, it is a two-player skirmish game. Absolutely. So let's talk about how the card play interacts with the skirmish play. Because to be frank, uh, the actual skirmish play is relatively simple. You can you get a pool of actions, and you spend your actions to move, and you can spend your actions to attack. And when you attack, I roll a certain number of dice, and you defend, and you roll a certain number of dice, and the number of hits I get is... Lessened by the number of hits you get, and that's the damage you do. Yeah, skull versus skull. Fair enough. Some of the missed ones are gets you coins that yes. you can use to upgrade. And we'll talk about we can talk about the economy later, but yeah. the number of actions you get is determined exclusively by the deck building part. So in traditional deck building style, your initial deck is garbage. You start with seven ones and three zeros. You have a five card hand, and you just that you generate a certain number of actions. And over the course of the game, 
making the most of your actions is indeed part of you know the bread and butter of any skirmish game, and certainly Gatefall is no exception. Do I bother to spend the extra movement to move this slow dude up, or do I just go and take the pot shot again with a ranged character who doesn't need to close anymore? Or... Yeah, it's how much risk you want to take. It's it's is it is it worth the risk? Is putting your miniature out in the open to try to take one of take out one of their guys worth it, or putting them out there? in order to take the hit purposely to save your other characters, these choices are what's important or hold back. You know, I got only a few actions this turn. Maybe I won't, you know, move up and put my, you know, figures in danger. I'll just stay back and wait for him to engage. They have this very interesting sort of middle ground that will get the other player a very small benefit, but the eponymous gate, the gate, is that why it's called gatefall? Yeah, very interesting. Um, <laughs> that's Walker's very, mind is blown. When you think about it, it's a very minor benefit. But it is. If but, you have more figures than your opponent at the top of your turn, you get a shiny penny. But it's very much like the flex, right? You're there. <laughs> they're not. And and you sort of like don't want them just to sit there and, and get that every turn. Walker, have you been regarding our games of Gatefall as a fundamental contest of masculinity in a way that I have not? Just so. Okay, apparently. Uh, okay, so here here's one thing I want to ask you about, because I my perception is that you like Gatefall more than I do. When it comes to skirmish games, I will play almost anything. So long as there's some element of interest... So long as it's more interesting than, say, you know, Warcry, just to pick a, a skirmish game that we both played and we both did not enjoy. It's like, well, I rush to the middle and we start bashing each other and someone dies and okay. So you talked about, for example, risk-reward. Do I want to subject my people to danger or not? Given that any figure can take any number of move actions that it wants, and given that, say, three-ish actions is a bad turn in Gatefall... I don't necessarily feel that same sense of jockeying that you do. So if I've got a character that I that I want to quote unquote protect, I just leave them in the back row. And so they just don't engage in the contest. And indeed, sometimes after having drafted my team more on that later, I realized I looked down at the stats. I'm like, why would I ever activate this this particular figure? Okay. And I've played games where I've just never activated a character at all and just left them alone. And unlike a game like Warhammer Underworlds, where the activation system is truly a work of genius and it's about very carefully deciding when to commit and leaving that person stationary, there I see there's risk-reward. When it comes to Gatefall, I just see the standard hero scapey, satisfying and fun, but very, very straightforward instance of me have club, we walk up, me walk up, me smash you upside head. I suppose you could look at that. You could look at it that way, but I do see a little bit of... of I believe I've now been insulted. Of... of you know, positioning. Okay. And I think it's just the fact that the games are so short that even if you do yes. make a mistake or or it's not going your way, it'll soon be over and you can start again. Yes, yes. The fact that Gatefall is so uh, quick and visceral is absolutely in its favor. Uh, you, you, The only way to get points is kills. And you play to seven kills and that's it. And it, so it's hard to take it very seriously, uh, pro or con. Just the problem is, uh, well, problem. One of the reasons why I don't quite see the same notion of jockeying or risk-reward is precisely because there's no terrain at all on the board. And I'm not asking for things to break line of sight or things like that, but again, to compare it to even something like Heroescape, to compare it to something like Aristea, to compare it to something like Warhammer Underworlds, where there's tangible geography to fight over. You care where you are. In, even in Heroescape, which is, I think, uh, the simplest of the skirmish games that we both absolutely adore, 
you care about be, having higher ground and you care about occupying glyphs. In Aristea, all the points come from positioning and in Warhammer Underworlds, a fair amount of it. Here, you're just killing people and there's no way to get bonuses. You don't flank people, you don't surround people, you don't get a terrain bonus for combat. If I've got four attack and you've got five defense, it's never, ever going to be in my favor odds-wise to attack you. Sometimes I have to. Like, that's just the nature yeah. of the game. I'm not saying that it leads to stalemates, but I'm just saying that in most other skirmish games that, that I think get to the very, very top tier, and I think Gatefall's close, but not quite there, in the skirmish engine itself, there are ways for me to juke the odds in my favor. And in Gatefall, just, they don't exist. Agree. I agree with all of those points. And the fact, and the, like you said, with Underworlds, the risk-reward is much higher because when your character dies, it's gone for the, the whole game. Whereas in Gatefall, they just simply spawn at the back, and off you go again. You you get to rotate them over and over again to no loss, other than... Other than the victory points and the fact yes. that every time you die, you get a zero in your deck. Yes, so it sort of bloats your deck. You don't want to lose, you don't want to lose your heroes too many times. It's true. And that, I think, leads us to an area where I think Gatefall is, at least, if not innovative definitely has something to recommend it when compared to those other skirmish games, or certainly more than the super generic skirmish games. And that is the fact that, as I say, it's deck, it's deck driven and this economy that's underlying it. The reason why I might attack you with my four attack character against your five defense character, other than just trying to get lucky is because it's going to generate money. And with this money, you can buy zeros out of your deck so you get leaner. You can buy new advanced cards, which are twos and threes, overwhelmingly. Or I can buy the upgrades attached to my characters. And that part, honestly, it keeps the game moving. In Gatefall, there's constantly new stuff entering, even though none of it is particularly earth-shattering or especially interesting. It's like, okay, well, now my character rolls four dice in attack instead of three. Well, now I have an extra two in my deck that I'll see every third turn or something like that. It's not huge, but given the weight and length of the game, it just it definitely keeps the game propelled forward. Agreed. Yeah, so that's what you do. At the beginning of your turn, you get to... Upgrade all your guys. You're spending the money that you rolled on the dice. You're spending money if you've controlled the gate. You Just like Mark said, you're spending uh, to thin your zeros. You don't want zeros in your deck. Zeros you, only, you only get to draw five cards, and then you discard them all, much like a... Traditional deck building structure, yeah. Uh, Dominion. Yeah. You play in all your cards, so zeros are bad. And the upgrades, like you said. And if you get even... you All your characters start with a special ability... If you get all of your upgrades, you get an even better special ability. I don't think we've seen that yet, at least not with any of my characters. Uh, yeah, I, I've done it a couple times. You have to work for it. And I, I've kind of made my peace with it. Initially, I, I, I thought it was a bit of a downside because every character, there's this large block of text that almost never comes into play. But over the course of a, of a game, you might get somewhere between four to eight upgrades. I'm speaking in very, very loose terms here. So you have to be very conscious and get all of those four upgrades to the same character to get their special ability. It's almost like you have to build your entire gameplay around trying to get that one ability. And then hopefully it you know, turns to advantage and gets you those victory points. Yeah, one hopes. And it's very much like HeroScape because all of the different factions that you could just choose from the beginning of the game, they're all for sort of from different worlds. You have your post-apocalyptic, your fantasy, your monsters that are coming out soon. You have your... Uh, Eastern folklore, Eastern folklore. In- inspired broadly, and they all have very different ways to play, different abilities, different stats, different special abilities. I don't know about different ways to play, different stats and different abilities. Absolutely, 
different ways to play. Mm. Yeah, well, with the folklore one, you get those bushes that you're putting out and sort of blocking, you know, parts of the map. That's true. Your 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 squishier characters do tend to rely on certain degrees of situational terrain manipulation that they introduce into the game. That that is true. Uh, I have yet to make them be quite as successful as, say, the giant ogre that just crushes people with his giant f-off hammer. But you know, <laughs> to each their own. That being said, the giant the giant ogre is is worth two victory points instead of one, and has a movement rating of one. Let's not forget. <laughs> Very hard, and the, that's the funny part. The dwarf gets to move. <laughs> I know four. Yep, which is most than more than most humans. Yes, it is a very high movement rate. Which I just find funny because in almost every game, you were almost outraged, and you dwarves were dwarves are very, slow. and you were playing the dwarf. It's so funny. <laughs> you're like, then I move the dwarf. The dwarf has probably something like two, four. The dwarf moves four. It's like just move the dwarf, Walker. But it moves four. Yes, Walker. Let's move on. <laughs> and is it a Kickstarter bonus that they all have four characters, or do they always come with four characters? Yeah, it has been so. All of the expansions have been crowdfunded. So far, there's one expansion. There's a second expansion that's on GameFound now for classic movie monsters. You know, Frankenstein, the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, uh, Dracula, for example. That's the technical term for the race. They're called Draculas. Most people don't know that. Gotcha. They get it wrong all the time. It bothers me. And there have been. This is actually one of my minor beefs uh, with Gatefall. The originally there's, you know, three characters and then there's been a stretch goal for a fourth that's either been an add-on or a free add-on for, for, for backers. I will say the following. Uh all the products in the Gatefall line have been very economical given their production values. As we are moving away from giant boxes full of minis, I would rather have a modest box with a smaller number of impressive minis. And despite the fact that a lot of the characters on first blush seem very generic in some of the factions, you know, like there's the ogre, there's the wizard, there's the dwarf. They are so large and so detailed that they end up having a lot more personality than your average box of like 75 plus minis where, you know, it's like, okay, well, here are your eight skeleton archers that you've seen a million times before. But there's a bit, there's my little spoil spart bit of, of, of balance brain that asks the following question. How come, how can you assert that the different factions are balanced when they don't have the same number of people in them? So for example, the new monsters faction that is, that is currently being crowdfunded is going to have, uh, five or six members in the core team, especially if you get the stretch goals. How is it that you can say that when you have the choice of being able to swap in and swap out different characters when selecting the faction. How can you say that that's going to be balanced to say the fantasy faction or the North, uh, North Woods expansion or whatever that just have the four characters? That doesn't seem to be plausible to me. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, so just so people know, you can, you only get to pick three of whatever characters are available or four, depending. And then there are allies that you get to summon during the game. Some factions have allies, some factions don't. Really? I yes. thought they all had something. Well, there are neutral ones that I have uh, that, that that we use when it is the case that that someone is playing without uh, a, a built-in ally. So there you go. I mean, I've I've been managing things behind the scenes to try to keep things some semblance of balance. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a neat little mascot for each team that you can summon during the game, and they do their own little thing, which is kind of neat. Yeah, it's usually you you bring them on with money. 
as opposed to automatically, and they tend to serve some kind of support role. Uh, one of them for the post-apocalyptic team, is, uh, post-apocalypse team is obviously the best. It is Penny, uh, the dog with uh, radio speakers attached to her who distracts opponents. It's amazing. And then uh, it generally tends to force the opponent to actually go kill the dog, which, which makes is, most people very uncomfortable. It is kind of brutal. <laughs> and, and they've got a whole slate of upcoming uh, titles, new miniatures, yep. new interesting things, yep. except for the one that's after the, the movie monsters. Um, <laughs> Boglins. It's a, it's a very, very obscure. I'm is it late, late 80s or early 90s reference? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's, maybe he's just a very big fan of that movie, maybe. Well, was in it a 80s? movie? Yes. Oh, I thought it was a, I thought it was just a, like a Saturday morning cartoon show. I thought it was a movie. No, they were just a series of toys distributed by Mattel. Originally released in 1987. Okay. <laughs> I thought for sure maybe I just got them mixed up with like the ghoulies or maybe you just some had such a silly thing. You had, maybe you just had an elaborate fever dream involving the goblin, uh, the the boglins, and you thought that it was a movie. No, look, it's interesting you put it that way because so much about Gatefall speaks to a passion project. This is obviously Jack Dyer's passion project, and a lot of that is evident. And quite frankly. When your passion project is is the juxtaposition of relatively accessible pricing, but ridiculously over-the-top miniatures at the same time, I'm hard-pressed to disagree with that. And there's a lot of charm, even when the gameplay is being simplistic, as I've complained about, there's still enough charm that is evident from the fact that this is a passion project, that it's still very nice to just, you know... Chuck, chuck the dice. I'm not above, you know, at, at some points having turns that are just dumb dice chucking. Yeah, and on the, the other things that ha- has going for it is the fact that everything is out on the table at the beginning. There's no take that cards. There's no secret abilities. There's none of these, you know, out of nowhere attacks. Everyone's abilities are on their boards. Everyone can see them. It's just a matter of who upgrades faster or who gets a better deck. Yeah, so there's a certain amount of uh, of deck manipulation, of making clever purchases, buying the right purchase at the right time, that serves to offer some degree of strategic control on top of the wild swings of luck with dice. Because when it comes to dice-resolved combat, I've got nothing against it, but all things being equal, I would much rather there being a single role, namely the role for, for the attacker, well, sometimes the defender, but a single role rather than two, because the moment you have that many more dice involved, it just skews the probabilities even more and makes it that sometimes the results are, are, are truly bizarre. Like, a lot of characters in Gatefall have two health. And sometimes you can be rolling a, a small number of attack dice against a larger number of defense dice, and they just die in one shot. Which, again, it's it's a short game. It's a light game. All of that is fine. And the penalties for dying aren't, aren't great. I know, but so. it's a seventh of the victory conditions, and I, I, yeah, I, I would uh, the, the combat resolution system serves more to drive the economy, namely to generate the coins, than it does to make sure that the combat turns out deterministically, Just which so. is a choice. It's a, it's a design choice as part of the hybrid nature of the design of Gatefall, and I'm I'm kind of okay with that. So in all, Gatefall is a great little skirmish game. Very easy to teach. Very easy to get started. You're simply just putting out a map, which every map is faction-specific. So when you get that faction, they also have their side of the board. The other player places their out. You put your three miniatures out. You lay out your first five cards, and you're already playing. So I'll play Gatefall anytime. I'm happy to play Gatefall. I'm happy to play almost any skirmish game. But just off the top of my head, you know, you've got Summoner Wars. You've got Aristea. 
you've got I, I've kind of given up on Warhammer Underworlds because the meta has basically devoured what used to be a, an, an approachable system, and now it's just a, a nightmare of cards and bands and, and and things like that. But I still have a soft spot in my heart for a lot uh, uh for a lot of the other more minimalistic two player games, like even Battle for Baternia. I'd rather play. There's a small box game called Titans Tactics, which I adore, but nobody else other than me likes. That for I think what remains. For what remains, absolutely. There are a lot of really good skirmish games. Gatefall is interesting, and I'll happily play it. I just don't think it reaches that top tier. But the bigotures remain enough of a novelty, and the table presence is such that I am very, very happy to play with you. And that is going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Check out sowronggames.com if you haven't. There's some good stuff there. Please do. We will read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again for deciding to spend some time with us. We apologize for having wasted it so. And we will see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>